0: Chapter 20 of Green Mantle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Carl, St. Louis, Missouri, July 2007. Green Mantle by John Buchan. Chapter 20 Peter Pinar Goes to the Wars. This chapter is the tale that peter told me long after, sitting beside a stove in the hotel at Bergen, where we were waiting for our boat. He climbed on the roof and shinned down the broken bricks of the outer wall. The outbuilding we were lodged in abutted on a road. It was outside the proper enciente of the house. At ordinary times I have no doubt there were sentries, but Sandy and Hussin had probably managed to clear them off this end for a little. Anyhow, he saw nobody as he crossed the road and dived into the snowy fields. He knew very well that he must do the job in the twelve hours of darkness ahead of him. The immediate front of the battle is a bit too public for anyone to lie hidden in by day, especially when two or three feet of snow make everything can speckle. Now, hurry in a job of this kind was abhorrent to a Peter's soul, for... Like all boars, his tastes were for slowness and sureness, though he could hustle fast enough when haste was needed. As he pushed through the winter fields, he reckoned up the things in his favor, and found the only one, the dirty weather. There was a high, gusty wind, blowing scuds of snow, but never coming to any great fall. The frost had gone, but the lying snow was as soft as butter. That was all to the good, he thought for a clear, hard night would have been the devil. The first bit was through farmlands, which were seamed with little snow-filled water furrows. Now and then would come a house and a patch of fruit trees, but there was nobody abroad. The roads were crowded enough, but Peter had no use for roads. I can picture him swinging along with his bent back, stopping every now and then to sniff and listen, alert for the foreknowledge of danger. When he chose, he could cover a country like an antelope. Soon he struck a big road full of transport. It was the road from Ezerum to the Palantuken Pass, and he waited his chance and crossed it. After that, the ground grew rough with boulders and patches of thorn trees, splendid cover where he could move fast without worrying. Then he was pulled up suddenly on the bank of a river. The map had warned him of it, but not that it would be so big. It was a torrent swollen with melting snow and rains in the hills, and it was running fifty yards wide. Peter thought he could have swum it, but he was very averse to a drenching. A wet man makes too much noise, he said, and besides, there was the off chance that the current would be too much for him. So he moved upstream to look for a bridge. In ten minutes he found one, a new-made thing of trestles, broad enough to take transport wagons. It was guarded, for he heard the tramp of a sentry and as he pulled himself up the bank, he observed a couple of long wooden huts, obviously some kind of billets. These were on the near side of the stream, about a dozen yards from the bridge. A door stood open, and a light showed in it. From within came the sound of voices. Peter had a sense of hearing like a wild animal, and he could detect even from the confused gabble that the voices were German. As he lay and listened, someone came over the bridge. It was an officer, for the sentry saluted the man disappeared in one of the huts. Peter had struck the billets and repairing shop of a squad of German sappers. He was just going ruefully to retrace his steps and try to find a good place to swim the stream when it struck him that the officer who had just passed him wore clothes very like his own. He, too, had had a gray sweater and a baklava helmet, for even a German officer ceases to be dressy on a midwinter's night in Anatolia." The idea came to peter to walk boldly across the bridge and trust to the sentry not seeing the difference he slipped around a corner of the hut and marched down the road the sentry was now at the far end which was lucky for if the worst came to the worst he could throttle him peter mimicking the stiff german walk swung past him his head down as if to protect him from the wind the man saluted he did more for he offered conversation the officer must have been a genial soul "'It's a rough night, Captain,' he said in German. "'The wagons are late. "'Pray God Michael hasn't got a shell in his lot. "'They've begun putting over some big ones.' "'Peter grunted "Good night" in German and strode on. "'He was just leaving the road "'when he heard a great halloo behind him. "'The real officer must have appeared on his heels, "'and the sentry's doubts had been stirred. "'A whistle was blown, and, looking back, "'Peter saw lanterns waving in the gale. "'They were coming out to look for the duplicate.' He stood still for a second, and noticed the light spreading out south of the road. He was just about to dive off it, on the north side, when he was aware of a difficulty. On that side a steep bank fell to a ditch, and the bank beyond bounded a big flood. He could see the dull ruffle of the water under the wind. On the road itself he would soon be caught. South of it the search was beginning, and the ditch itself offered no place to hide, for he saw a lantern moving up it. Peter dropped into it all the same and made a plan. The side below the road was a little undercut and very steep. He resolved to plaster himself against it, for he would be hidden from the road, and a searcher in the ditch would not be likely to explore the unbroken sides. It was always a maxim of Peter's that the best hiding place was the worst, at least obvious to the minds of those who were looking for you. He waited until the lights both in the road and the ditch came nearer, and then he gripped the edge with his left hand, where some stones gave him purchase, dug the toes of his boots into the wet soil, and stuck like a limpet. It needed some strength to keep that position for long, but the muscles of his arms and legs were like whipcord. The searcher in the ditch soon got tired, for the place was very wet, and joined his comrades on the road. They came along, running, flashing the lanterns into the trench and exploring all the immediate countryside, Then rose a noise of wheels and horses from the opposite direction. Michael and the delayed wagons were approaching. They dashed up at a great pace, driven wildly, and for one horrid second Peter thought they were going to spill into the ditch at the very spot where he was concealed. The wheels passed so close to the edge that they almost grazed his fingers. Somebody shouted an order, and they pulled up a yard or two nearer the bridge. The others came up, and there was a consultation michael swore he had passed no one on the road that fool Hannes has seen a ghost said the officer testily it's too cold for this child's play Hannes, almost in tears repeated his tale the man spoke to me in good german he cried ghost or no ghost he is safe enough up the road said the officer kind god that was a big one he stopped and stared at a shell burst for the bombardment from the east was growing fiercer they stood discussing the fire for a minute and presently moved off peter gave them two minutes law then clambered back to the highway and set off along it at a run the noise of the shelling and the wind together with the thick darkness made it safe to hurry he left the road at the first chance and took to the broken country the ground was now rising towards the spur of the palantouken on a far slope of which were the turkish trenches the night had begun by being pretty nearly as black as pitch even the smoke from the shell explosions which was often visible in darkness could not be seen but as the wind blew the snow clouds athwart the sky patches of stars came out peter had a compass but he didn't need to use it for he had a kind of feel for landscape a special sense which is born in savages and can only be acquired after long experience by the white man. I believe he could smell where the north lay. He had settled roughly which part of the line he would try, merely because of its nearness to the enemy. But he might see reason to vary this. As he moved, he began to think that the safest place was where the shelling was hottest. He didn't like the notion, but it sounded sense. Suddenly he began to puzzle over queer things in the ground, and... As if he had never seen big guns before, it took him a moment to fix them. Presently, one went off at his elbow with a roar like the last day. These were Austrian howitzers, nothing over eight-inch, I fancy, but to Peter they looked like leviathans. Here, too, he saw for the first time a big and quite recent shell hole, for the Russian guns were searching out the position. He was so interested in it all that he poked his nose where he shouldn't have been and dropped plumb into the pit behind a gun encampment. "'Gunners all over the world are the same, "'shy people who hide themselves in holes "'and hibernate and mortally dislike being detected. "'A gruff voice cried, "Verda," "'And a heavy hand seized his neck. "'Peter was ready with his story. "'He belonged to Michael's wagon team "'and had been left behind. "'He wanted to be told the way to the sapper's camp. "'He was very apologetic, not to say obsequious. "'It is one of those Prussians' finds from the Marta Bridge.' A gunner, Dant him a kick to teach him sense, bear to your right, mankin, and you will find a road and have a care when you get there for the Ruskos are registering on it. Peter thanked them and bore off to the right. After that, he kept a wary eye on the howitzers and was thankful when he got out of their area to the slopes up the hill and he defied any Turk or botch to spot him among the scrub and boulders. He was getting on very well when once more close to his ear came a sound like the crack of doom it was the field guns now and the sound of a field gun close at hand is bad for the nerves if you aren't expecting it peter thought he had been hit and lay flat for a little to consider then he found the right explanation and crawled forward very warily Presently he saw his first Russian shell. It dropped half a dozen yards to his right, making a great hole in the snow and sending up a mass of mixed earth, snow, and broken stones. Peter spat out the dirt and felt very solemn. You must remember that never in his life had he seen a big shelling, and was now being landed in the thick of a first-class show without any preparation. He said he felt cold in his stomach and very wishful to run away, if there had been anywhere to run. "'but he kept on to the crest of the ridge, "'over which a big glow was broadening like sunrise. "'He tripped once over a wire, "'which he took for some kind of snare, "'and after that went very warily. "'By and by he got his face between two boulders "'and looked over into the true battlefield. "'He told me it was exactly what the predikant "'used to say that hell would be like. "'About fifty yards down the slope "'lay the Turkish trenches. "'They were dark against the snow,' and now and then a black figure like a devil showed for an instant and disappeared the turks clearly expected an infantry attack for they were sending up calcium rockets and very flares the russians were battering their line and spraying all the hinterland not with shrapnel but with good solid high explosives the place would be as bright as day for a moment all smothered in a scurry of smoke and snow and debris and then a black pall would fall on it, when only the thunder of the guns told the battle. Peter felt very sick. He had not believed there could be so much noise in the world, and the drums of his ears were splitting. Now, for a man whom courage is habitual, the taste of fear, naked, utter fear, is a horrible thing. It seems to wash away all his manhood. Peter lay on the crest, watching the shells burst, and confident that any moment he might be a shattered remnant. He lay and reasoned with himself, calling himself every name he could think of, but conscious that nothing would get rid of that lump of ice below his heart. Then he could stand it no longer. He got up and ran for his life. But he ran forward. It was the craziest performance. He went hell for leather over a piece of ground which was being watered with A.G. But by the mercy of heaven nothing hit him. He took some fearful tosses and shell holes that, partly erect and partly on all fours, he did the fifty yards and tumbled into a Turkish trench right on top of a dead man. The contact with that body brought him to his senses. That man could die at all seemed a comforting, homely thing after that unnatural pandemonium. The next moment a crump took the parapet of the trench some yards to his left, and he was half buried in an avalanche. He crawled out of that pretty badly cut about the head. He was quite cool now and thinking hard about his next step. There were men all around him, sullen dark faces as he saw them when the flares went up. They were manning the parapets and waiting tensely for something else than the shelling. They paid no attention to him, for I fancy that in the trench units are pretty well mixed up, and under a bad bombardment no one bothers about his neighbour. He found himself free to move as he pleased. The ground of the trench was littered with empty cartridge cases, and there were many dead bodies. The last shell, as I have said, had played havoc with the parapet. In the next spell of darkness, Peter crawled through the gap and toasted among some snowy hillocks. He was no longer afraid of shells, any more than he was afraid of a veldt thunderstorm, but he was wondering very hard how he should ever get to the Russians. The Turks were behind him now, but there was the biggest danger in front. Then the artillery ceased. It was so sudden that he thought he had gone deaf, and could hardly realize the blessed relief of it. The wind, too, seemed to have fallen, or perhaps he was sheltered by the lee of the hill. There were a lot of dead here, also, and that he couldn't understand, for they were new dead. Had the Turks attacked and been driven back? When he had gone about thirty yards, he stopped to take his bearings. On the right were the ruins of large buildings set on fire by guns. There was a blur of woods and the debris of walls round it. Away to the left, another hill ran out farther to the east, and the place he was in seemed to be a kind of cup between the spurs. Just before him was a little ruined building, with the sky seen through its rafters, for the smoldering ruin on the right gave a certain light. He wondered if the Russian firing line lay there. Just then he heard voices, smothered voices, not a yard away and apparently below the ground. He instantly jumped to what this must mean. It was a Turkish trench, a communication trench. Peter didn't know much about modern warfare, but he had read in the papers or heard from me enough to make him draw the right moral. The fresh dead pointed to the same conclusion. What he had got through were the Turkish support trenches, not their firing line. That was still before him. He didn't despair, for the reef bound from panic had made him extra courageous. He crawled forward an inch at a time, taking no sort of risk, and presently found himself looking at the parados of a trench. Then he lay quiet to think out the next step. The shelling had stopped, and there was that queer kind of peace which falls sometimes on two armies not a quarter of a mile distant. Peter said he could hear nothing but the far-off sighing of the wind. There seemed to be no movement of any kind in the trench before him, which ran through the ruined building. The light of the burning was dying, and he could just make out a mound of earth a yard in front. He got out his packet of food and had a swig at the brandy flask. That comforted him, and he felt a master of his fate again. But the next step was not so easy. He must find out what lay behind that mound of earth. Suddenly a curious sound fell on his ears. It was so faint that at first he doubted the evidence of his senses. Then, as the wind fell, it came louder. It was exactly like some hollow piece of metal being struck by a stick, musical and oddly resonant. He concluded it was the wind blowing a branch of a tree against an old boiler in the ruin before him. The trouble was that there was scarcely enough wind now for that in this sheltered cup. But as he listened, he caught the note again. It was a bell, a fallen bell, and the place before him must have been a chapel. He remembered that an Armenian monastery had been marked on the big map, and he guessed it was the burned building to his right. The thought of a chapel and a bell gave him the notion of some human agency, and then suddenly the notion was confirmed. The sound was regular and concerted. Dot, dash, dot, dash, dot, dot. "'The branch of a tree and the wind may play strange pranks, "'but they do not produce the longs and shorts of the Morse code.' "'This was where Peter's intelligence work in the Boer War helped him. "'He knew the Morse; he could read it, "'but he could make nothing of the signaling. "'It was either in some special code or in a strange language. "'He lay still and did some calm thinking. "'There was a man in front of him, a Turkish soldier,' who was in the enemy's pay. Therefore, he could fraternize with him, for they were on the same side. But how was he to approach him without getting shot in the process? Again, how could a man send signals to the army from a firing line without being detected? Peter found an answer in the strange configuration of the ground. He had not heard a sound until he was a few yards from the place, and they would be inaudible to men in the reserve trenches and even in the communication trenches. If somebody moving up the ladder caught the noise, it would be easy to explain it naturally, but the wind blowing down the cup would carry it far in the enemy's direction. There remained the risk of being heard by those parallel with the bell in the firing trenches. Peter concluded that the trench must be very thinly held, probably only by a few observers, and the nearest might be a dozen yards off. He had read about that being the French fashion under a big bombardment. The next thing was to find out how to make himself known to this ally. He decided that the only way was to surprise him. He might get shot, but he trusted to his strength and agility against a man who was almost certainly wearied. When he had got him safe, explanations might follow peter was now enjoying himself hugely if only these infernal guns kept silent he would play out the game in the sober, decorous way he loved so very delicately he began to wriggle forward to where the sound was the night was now as black as ink round him and very quiet too except for the sawings of the dying gale the snow had drifted a little in the lee of the ruined walls and peter's progress was naturally very slow he could not afford to dislodge one ounce of snow still the tinkling went on now in greater volume peter was in terror lest it should cease before he got his man presently his hand clutched at empty space he was on the lip of the front trench the sound was now a yard to his right and with infinite care he shifted his position now the bell was just below him and he felt the big rafter of the woodwork from which it had fallen he felt something else, a stretch of wire fixed in the ground, with the far end hanging in the void. That would be the spy's explanation if anyone heard the sound and came seeking the cause. Somewhere in the darkness before him and below was the man, not a yard off. Peter remained very still, studying the situation. He could not see, but he could feel the presence, and he was trying to decide the relative position of the man and Bell and their exact distance from him the thing was not so easy as it looked for if he jumped for where he believed the figure was he might miss it and get a bullet in the stomach a man who played so risky a game was probably handy with his firearms besides if he should hit the bell he would make a hideous row and alarm the whole front fate suddenly gave him the right chance the unseen figure stood up and moved a step until his back was against the parados he actually brushed against peter's elbow who held his breath. There is a catch that the kafirs have, which would need several diagrams to explain. It is partly a neck hold and partly a paralyzing backward twist of the right arm, but if it is practiced on a man from behind, it locks him as sure as if he were handcuffed. Peter slowly got his body raised and his knees under him and reached for his prey. He got him. A head was pulled backward over the edge of the trench, and he felt, in the air, the motion of the left arm, pawing feebly, but unable to reach behind. "'Be still,' whispered Peter in German. "'I mean you no harm. We are friends, the same purpose. Do you speak German?' "'Nein,' said the muffled voice. "'English?' "'Yes,' said the voice. "'Thank God,' said Peter, "'that we can understand each other. I have watched your notion of signaling, and a very good one it is.' "'I've got to get through the Russian lines somehow before morning, "'and I want you to help me. "'I'm English, a uh, kind of English, so we're on the same side. "'If I let go your neck, will you be good and talk reasonably?' "'The voice assented. "'Peter let go, and in the same instant slipped to the side. "'The man wheeled around and flung out an arm, but gripped vacancy. "'Steady, friend,' said Peter. "'You mustn't play tricks on me, or I'll be angry. "'Who are you? Who sent you?' asked a puzzled voice. "'Peter hid of happy thought.' companions of the rosy hours, he said. Then we are friends indeed, said the voice. Come out of the darkness, friend, and I will do you no harm. I am a good Turk, and I fought beside the English and Kordofan, and learned their language. I live only to see the ruin of the Enver, who has beggared my family and slain my twin brother. Therefore I serve the Muskov jars. I don't know what the musky jaws are, but if you mean the Russians, I am with you. I've got news for them which would make Enver Green. The question is how I'm to get to them, and that is where you shall help me, my friend. How? By playing that little tune of yours again. Tell them to expect within the next half hour a deserter with an important message. Tell them, for God's sake, not to fire at anyone until they've made certain it isn't me. The man took the blunt end of his bayonet and squatted beside the bell. The first stroke brought out a clear, searching note which floated down the valley. He struck three notes at slow intervals. For all the world, Peter said, he was like a telegraph operator calling up a station. "'Send the message in English,' said Peter. "'They may not understand it,' said the man. "'Then send it any way you like. I trust you, for we are brothers.' After ten minutes, the man ceased and listened. From far away came the sound of a trench gong, the kind of thing they used on the western front to give the gas alarm. "'They say they will be ready,' he said. "'I cannot take down messages in the darkness, but they have given me the signal which means consent.' "'Come, that is pretty good,' said Peter. "'And now I must be moving. You take a hint from me. When you hear big firing up to the north, get ready to beat a quick retreat, for it will all be up with that city of yours.' "'And tell your folk, too, that they're making a bad mistake "'letting those fool Germans rule their land. "'Let them hang Enver and his little friends, "'and we'll be happy once more.' "'May Satan receive his soul,' said the Turk. "'There is wire before us, but I will show you a way through. "'The guns this evening made many rents in it, "'but the haste, for a working party may be here presently to repair it. "'Remember, there is much wire before the other lines.' Peter, with certain directions, found it pretty easy to make his way through the entanglement. There was one bit which scraped a hole in his back, but very soon he had come to the last posts and found himself in open country. The place, he said, was a graveyard among the unburied dead that smelt horribly as he crawled among them. He had no inducements to delay, for he thought he could hear behind him the movement of the Turkish working party, and was in terror that a flare might reveal him and a volley accompany his retreat. From one shell hole to another he wormed his way, until he struck an old ruinous communication trench, which led in the right direction. The Turks must have been forced back in the past week, and the Russians were now in the evacuated trenches. The thing was half full of water, but it gave Peter a feeling of safety, for it enabled him to get his head below the level of the ground. Then it came to an end, and he found before him a forest of wire. The Turk in his signal had mentioned half an hour, but Peter thought it was near two hours before he got through that noxious entanglement. Shelling had made little difference to it. The uprights were all there, and the barbed strands seemed to touch the ground. Remember, he had no wire cutter, nothing but his bare hands. Once again, fear got hold of him. He felt caught in a net, with monstrous vultures waiting to pounce on him from above. At any moment, a flare might go up, and a dozen rifles find their mark. He had altogether forgotten about the message which had been sent, for no message could dissuade the ever-present death he felt around him. It was, he said, like following an old lion into bush, when there was but one narrow way in, and no road out. The guns began again, the Turkish guns, from behind the ridge, and a shell tore up the wire a short way before him. Under cover of the burst he made a few good yards, leaving large portions of his clothing in the strands then quite suddenly when hope had almost died in his heart he felt the ground rise steeply he lay very still a star rocket from the turkish side lit up the place and there in front was a rampart with the points of bayonets showing beyond it it was the russian hour for stand to he raised his cramped limbs from the ground shouted friend english a face looked down at him and then the darkness again descended "'Friend!' he said hoarsely. "'English!' He heard speech beyond the parapet. An electric torch was flashed on him for a second. A voice spoke, a friendly voice, and the sound of it seemed to be telling him to come over. He was standing now, and as he got his hands on the parapet, he seemed to feel the bayonets very near him. But the voice that spoke was kindly, so with a heave he scrambled over and flopped into the trench." Once more the electric torch was flashed and revealed to the eyes of the onlookers an indescribably dirty, lean, middle-aged man with a bloody head and scarcely a rag of shirt on his back. The said man, seeing friendly faces around him, grinned cheerfully. "'That was a rough trek, friends,' he said. "'I want to see your general pretty quick, for I've got a present for him.' He was taken to an officer in a dugout who addressed him in French, which he did not understand but the sight of Sturm's plan worked wonders. After that he was fairly bundled down communication trenches and then over swampy fields to a farm among trees. There he found staff officers who looked at him and looked at his map and then put him on a horse and hurried him eastwards. At last he came to a big ruined house and was taken into a room which seemed full of maps and generals. The conclusion must be told in Peter's words. There was a big man sitting at a table drinking coffee, and when I saw him my heart jumped out of my skin, for it was the man I had hunted with on the Pungva in 98, him whom the Kaffirs called Buck's Horn because of his long curled moustaches. He was a prince even then, and now he is a very great general. When I saw him I ran forward and gripped his hand and cried, "'How got hit here?' and he knew me, and shouted in Dutch, Damn, if it isn't old Peter Pienaar! Then he gave me coffee and ham and good bread, and he looked at my map. What is this? he cried, growing red in the face. It is the staff map of one Sturm, a German skellum, who commands in yon city, I said. He looked at it close and read the markings, and then he read the other paper which you gave me, Dick, and then he flung up his arms and laughed, He took a loaf and tossed it into the air, so that it fell on the head of another general. He spoke to them in their own tongue, and they too laughed, and one or two ran out as if on some errand. I have never seen such merrymaking. They were clever men, and they knew the worth of what you gave me. Then he got to his feet and hugged me, all dirty as I was, and kissed me on both cheeks. Before God, Peter, you are the mightiest hunter since Nimrod. You found me game but never game so big as this. End of chapter 20